Spark Nation. I'm Jim Wyant, founder of ETF.com and CEO of Spark Network. And this is Pennies from Heaven, a podcast featuring choice insights and lively debate with all the biggest names in the ETF world and beyond. Join us to receive Pennies from Heaven straight from the nattering nabobs of investment. All right. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. We're live from Future Proof on Huntington Beach, which is super cool. We've got the beach. Super hot. Super it hot. is hot and cool at the same time. Yeah, and we, right. ha we have like a bit of a ETF.com reunion today. Index Universe reunion. I'm Index oh, wow. Universe. Old school. Yeah. Journal of Indexes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, this, this is the uh, Pennies from Heaven podcast with Jim Wyant from Spark Network. And I have a lot of the original founding team from ETF.com. Taking the journalist role on the crew, we've got <laughs> Cynthia Murphy, who is currently the director of research at ETF Think Tank uh, over at Title. After 12 years at ETF.com, that's a new thing. 12 years. <laughs> 12 <laughs> years. That's like a career. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. impressive. I think that about equals me. Actually. I think that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but productivity, she's got your way beat. So. Oh, yeah, that was after sure. a year. That's for sure. And then on the far end, we've got Dave Nodick, who's financial futurist at Vetify. Yep. And we've got Matt Hogan, who's chief investment officer at Bitwise and has entered the Bitcoin realm. That's right. Um, so I thought it would be fun to do a couple things, like reminisce a little bit, um, but also call back to Dave and Matt's old big stage, what's the big idea of what's going on this year, which is always like the highlight of Inside ETFs back in the day. Dave and Matt would get on stage and kind of talk about What's happening this year? So um, let's kick off, and I'll ask each of you that question, and I assume you haven't coordinated for one big idea. <laughs> no, because you didn't, us, <laughs> you didn't give us a heads up. No so. prep, so <laughs> totally off the cuff. Skimming right now. Yeah, That's so gonna make, this guy you're going to make, sure. oh, now we're going to flip. Oh, yeah, no, going time. for this guy down the panel. Uh, so I actually have five things that I'm tracking for the next 18 months, but if I had to pick one thing, like one big idea that's going to dominate, certainly media coverage for the rest of the year, honestly, this ridiculous fight we're having over what ESG is, whether it's good or bad, um, I, I'm, I find the whole thing disappointing. I find it, I'm Todd Rosenbluth on our team who's our head of research at Vetify, like went on CNBC and had a bit of a rant about how ridiculous it is that we're having this argument about whether or not ESG companies are boycotting energy companies when like iShares two biggest ESG funds own hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of Exxon and Schlumberger and everybody else, right? So we have this unbelievable battle going on between people who are frankly trying to do something largely economic. Most of the big money chasing ESG is not doing it because they woke up one morning and had patchouli next to them. They're doing it because they think these are not yet financial concerns that really matter and also help us save the planet. The people on the other side, quote unquote, of this argument are making a lot of disingenuous arguments about what's really going on in ESG. And I think setting that record a little bit straight and maybe actually coming up with some commonality, finding some common ground about things we actually do care about. I mean, okay, if we don't want to talk about drilling for oil, can we talk about board diversity? Can we talk about fair labor practices? There's a lot behind ESG that's not just whether or not the U.S. is drilling more. Do you think that word survives, ESG? Unfortunately, I think it's a little bit like ETF or Kleenex or Frisbees at this point. I, mean, I would hope become, not. I would hope we it tried would go ten away. years ago. I think, it's, I think it's going away. I think it's. I think it's going away. So what's it going to be? I don't know. I don't know. 
values-based ETP? investing or something. Oh, ESG by itself. I, I, yeah. I think that this, I think the common ground that you're talking about is innovation, right? Like it's a reframing around innovation and opportunity for innovation. I couldn't agree with you more. <clears throat> it is such a unfortunate development that like it's become politicized. And by the way, if you want to invest in whatever you want to invest in, go, go for, for it. it. Like do it. <laughs> right? Like there's that product for you, then go go do the guns and drugs one if right. you want. Right? Like it's so like I don't even get it. It's not like, oh, this is being forced on the population that you have to invest in in that way. So that's one thing. But the other thing is I just think ESG in this country has been done so poorly for so long. It's like such a like hammer on the head. Of like, ah, you know, and like, and it's, but it, it's wrong. Like, it's exciting. Like, saving the world is exciting. It be exciting. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like, innovation is exciting, right? Like, so it's more Elon Musk than it is like Jane Goodall, or I, I don't but, know what the other. No, side they've of made it seem like medicine for sure. Yeah, That's and the I, brand I that think the gotten. thing that people are missing is that I, I think you know when you read some of the criticism, it sounds a lot like, well, this is just BS, right? That there, this does nothing except give BlackRock more money because they can charge a couple bips more for something. I and and I think it's reasonable to question that and to poke at that. And so for the last you know, month or two, I've been working, um, I've got an interview coming out with Microsoft and the Environmental Defense Fund, where we talk about the end state of ESG. Okay, Microsoft's a, an ESG leader, right? They're at the top of all those lists. That means they actually have a lower cost of capital. What do they do with that extra money that they can extract from the capital system? And it turns out pretty cool stuff, like building entire water systems in Southeast Asia, right? I mean, it's real work. It's not just namby-pamby, you know, very disconnected, oh, we planted 12 hectares in South America to offset our carbon. No, this is like legit money doing real work. And I think people don't get that. Yeah, but I think what triggered it all was performance. So I think it just tells us that at the end of the day, U.S. investors are still really focused on performance because this whole conversation came about because energy is killing it this year and a lot of the SG funds are lagging. So all of a sudden, yeah. like, why yeah. am I in this? So. I think the focus on performance became apparent, but I also think if you talk to advisors, the ESG conversation is a great one to have with clients. They're all there. They're all trying to figure it out, but the implementation, to Jim's point, is hard. The products are confusing. They're not really laser focused. I mean, we're starting to see improvement there, but I think it's been slow. So I, I actually hate ESG as a category. I think it's like, like remember the smart beta days? Yeah, time it we feels spent a little saying, bit like It's that. like a stupid name. It doesn't really help people understand. I think ESG the same way. I think environment, governance, social, they're completely different themes. They would be mm -hmm. much better implemented on a very specific, uh, you know, slice. Just making an aggregate slice, a little bit like alternatives. It's too broad. It's too well, it's, confusing. It's like Makes being it a hard to implement. Fund. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I understand that. So I think there's room for improvement for sure. I've, I have a question for that I'll frame for you, Matt, mm -hmm. on this, which is this is like really getting to the core of it of the issue. So if I'm uh, State Street or Vanguard or BlackRock, um, do should I be an activist investor in any way? Right. Like what is my responsibility to look at the data and the numbers and, and analyze sort of the risk and the upside and sort of put pressure on companies to have whether it's better governance or whether it's in the case of ExxonMobil or whoever else to have a game plan toward climate? What is my obligation to do that or not? 
Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, you're a steward of capital, right? And so you should be focusing those companies to the extent those are risks that will impact the success of the company. I think where it gets uh, hedgy for them is when you're focusing them on sort of pricing in externalities that the market doesn't price in and aren't being charged to those companies. And that's where sort of the values overlay gets conflicted. But when you're talking about improving the long-term performance of the company, of course that's your role. Of course there's more data. And of course they should be focused on it. But I do think you have to separate those out. Right, the performance of the company from this sort of generalized concept of pricing and externalities that society doesn't do a good job of pricing into the capital markets. That's good. But you're bringing up another point, which is one of my other five pillars, which is sort of the ethics of being an index shop. Right? What does that mean? What are your obligations? It all usually comes down to voting. That tends to be the thing people care about. And obviously, we have examples like engine number one of whole companies built on how they're going to vote now. Right? So that's a legitimate part of the conversation. Um, but you know, the response from the body corpus has been the Index Act, which is one of the worst pieces, worst written pieces of legislation I've ever read in my life, because it would literally just say no index is get to vote ever, because they wrote it <laughs> specifically in a way that you can't get out of the conundrum the way they wrote the law. So it looks like you're giving votes back to shareholders, but what you actually do is blowing up the capital structure. And and that's going to probably come back in the next Congress, and it will probably pass, because if you get Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders on the same side of something, that's a steamroller. Yeah, I also think it'll probably pass. I think it's easy to make a bogeyman out of it. It's easy to make that sort of superficial argument that that's what you should do. So I think there's real risk around that. It can be the answer that we just don't vote our shares. That's the current that's, not, like, that's the that's best not proposal not out right now. Works. Like I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take all the long-term investors and don't let them vote. Yeah. Well, the other part that I think is work. hilarious because this is like what I do is get into the nerdy garbage under the hood. If you actually did that. No mid-cap dividend company would ever be able to hold an, an annual meeting again because they'd never have enough proxy votes because the index component of mid-cap dividends is – I mean, Vanguard it's owns massive. 20 30% yeah, yeah. of some of the smaller mid-cap div companies. They don't get to have annual meetings now? They don't get to you know, vote on an M&A because those votes don't count? It's, it's a broken idea. It's a big, big issue in the industry, right? It's a, it's, and not even just the industry, but like with our system. Capitalist system is like actually having vote that gives that provides governance for companies. You gotta have that. Like yeah. it's fundamental. And so there's gotta be something like whether it's pass through or I don't know what pass through's the answer. Like. It's there's just easy, gonna take yeah. time. Yeah. You can see from thirty thousand feet the easy technological solution. It should be obvious. It's pass through voting. It should be easy to do. Um, but there's a lot of wood to chop between where we are and that region. And there's laws in the way, right? Right now, you literally can't do pass-through voting. It's against the way the 40 Act is written. Matt Hogan. Yeah. What, what's your big idea? What's your big idea? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few ideas about the ETF industry, and then I'll tell you what I'm actually thinking about as a person. Um, <laughs> one, one, one good thing about having been in the industry and then not being in it on a day-to-day -day basis, I mean, we have ETFs. I watch the space. I read everything people write. Um, is you get a little bit of distance. The two things that, that stand out to me from that piece of distance is just the massive capitulation of mutual funds, which is something that Dave and I talked about for years. But, you know, last year we had, what, $900 billion into ETFs? Uh, if this wasn't a down year for the market, it'd be the first trillion-dollar year. Uh, that's pretty remarkable, and you're seeing every mutual fund company convert. So that's one thing that catches my eye. Uh, the other thing is the, is the rise of Active. Active's got non-trivial share. 
of ETF flows this year, right? 12% of revenue. Right, which is yeah. really significant. Revenue. Of rev- well, oh, I mean, yeah, we always talk about that's, flows, that's... and everybody's like, there's no room for competition. And I'm like, if you look at who's bringing it yeah. in, there's a lot of competition. I think know? there were a lot of people that would have taken the under on 12% of revenue yeah. from active at this point. Uh, and I think that trend is, is probably right. Do, do you know the, number for, you know the AUM percentage? Uh, like probably, five. Probably five, a third yeah. of that. Five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Near yeah, five. it's the beauty of high fees. So that's what I see <laughs> from the outside. I see, um, I see just massive capitulation. It, you know, every mutual fund is effectively going away, and then I see active carving out a non-trivial share that'll probably rise to a third. I wouldn't be surprised if it got there at some point on revenue. Yeah, yeah, could something be. like that. Like, but fifteen, twenty percent of assets. Sure, that seems like a, a, a logical target. There'll always be people who have. Both a great idea that they want to put into a fund and people who just believe in active management and, yeah. want, and want to take the bet, even if the math might be against them. Of course, of course. And what about direct, customized, downstream, which was one of your big ideas on stage? Direct what's, indexing. The, yeah, uh, the, what's the state of that? You know, I still think, well, all the companies got acquired. Uh, <laughs> Dave and I talked about it, led to great M&A. And I think we got some only we got a piece of the we got action. some T-shirts yeah. out of it. <laughs> um, all the companies got acquired, and it's in the early stage of building. I still think direct indexing is the only solution that works for ESG for advisors. I think it enables incredible conversations with your clients about their specific values. I think there will be a ten, twenty, hundred billion dollar advisor built out of values based investing that we haven't seen be built yet, um, but. I think some of the steam has come out of direct indexing to some degree. Yeah, I think we're in a pause because, as you said, all of the sort of hot rising tech got bought. They all got incorporated into larger companies. Now, Canvas went over to Franklin Templeton. You know, a lot of the motifs went, went to Schwab. Right, right, exactly. So it takes you know a year or two for that stuff to then percolate through yeah. those organizations. I think where we're going to see it first is probably Schwab. Um, you know, they've got the tech there. I think they're still wrestling with how do they deal with the value proposition versus the other things they offer, which is a lot. Um, and that's just, the problem of being inside a big company is because it's a better solution. It actually makes your other stuff look bad. It makes your other stuff look bad. But I do think if you're an advisor and your second question is what do you care about in the world, you have a much better relationship with your customer than yeah. if it's like how many kids do you have and how much has you saved and all like – all that stuff is just numbers. If you can have a values-based conversation, I think there's a uh, Rick Edelman-style person to emerge for values-based advising mm-hmm. uh, that we haven't seen yet. I think it's a huge opportunity. Yeah. What's your big idea, Cynthia? I want to hear what uh, your yeah. big idea for the year is. I have a lot of little ideas, but uh, one of the things, which is a completely different direction, we've been talking internally at the ETF Think Tank, is just this idea of ETF as a service. So I, I remember when I first started with you guys back in '09. you know, it was the conversation about ETFs as a technology. And I never quite got that narrative. To me, it was, it's a fund. I understand it that way. But now when we see the, the whole single stock craze, the now single treasury craze, now the Round Hill filing for, which essentially is an ADR, right. you know, the Samsung and the fake Saudi ADRs. Aramco. Yeah. <laughs> so, so just this idea of using the technology of the ETF to just wrap something as simple as a foreign stock for people who can't access, it really solidifies to me the idea of ETF as an access story, which is the ultimate service. That the industry provides. Are you a right? fan? I mean, we're so, going to have a thousand of these things. I, yeah, I am going to hate having to write about every single one that launches. <laughs> and uh, I can't wait for the numbers of we had a million launches in 2022, which is really going <laughs> to skew all our numbers. 
But uh, as a as an innovation, I think it's really interesting. I mean, uh, initially my my reaction was like, "Ooh, this is gonna be retail crack." You know, do they even know what they're doing? Um, but I actually think this is this is a really interesting uh, direction this is going. So I like it. Hmm, love it. I I'm not a super fan of the single stock stuff just because just because of the personal headache it's going to cause right. me. I mean, just the amount of energy that's going to get sucked out of the room because every one of these things has yeah. the opportunity to misprice. Like, I mean, things but, do break in the ETF ecosystem. The ecosystem's really good at fixing that and healing. But you throw another thousand primarily day traded vehicles out there. I feel like we're opening ourselves up. Don't for... you think it works on ADRs <laughs> and it works on treasuries? I don't think it works on on domestic listed stocks. But like, no one can buy ten cent. Why shouldn't I be able to buy ten cent? If I want to buy ten cent, why do I have to buy it on the pink sheets, which is my choice right now? If I want to buy Adidas. Why do I have to buy it on the pink sheets? You want to send me to the OTC market? Well, but there, but it's to play way better to but to it. play devil's advocate, there are reasons those companies are not listing as ADRs. There's a reason some of them might not be able to list as ADRs. It's because of their ownership structures, their accounting mechanisms, oh, the I capital that. markets that they're in. But so the, there's reasons that people can't trade those on NYSE right now. Right, but the choice is not don't trade them on NYSE. The choice that people make is trade them on the OTCQX. Right. Well, very few people do, and now way more people will. Yeah. Right? So do all those people understand that you've got significant accounting risks in Tencent or any of those issues? Yes, they all understand that. 100%. Mass education. You're just sure everybody out there is smarter than you are. I got it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I do think, you know, if if retail ends up being the one that adopts the stuff the most, I I actually been thinking whether we underestimate retail a little bit. It's always like they don't know what they're doing. I actually think like I have two college age kids and boy, they learn fast. So they each have their little brokerage account and, you know, they bet on this growth, the cool stuff, and they got hit hard and boom, they understand diversification. I also think uh, they really, if, to talk about, we talk in this event about community, talk about a segment of investors that learn from a community. They really are out there. All the different applications that are coming out are about the communal learning and how to do it. So I, I don't know. I'm starting to wonder if we're underestimating this, this group and they actually are going to make a killing on this 1.25 Tesla single stock. And we're going <laughs> to of like, why didn't I think of that? I don't know. The leverage stuff scares me. But uh... <laughs> yeah, I just the, the leverage inverse stuff that I understand, that's a bit caveat emptor. People will understand that it says 1.25x. There'll be some people who don't understand and read the tickers wrong. The things about the sort of the fake ADRs, mm. that's regulatory arbitrage. And there's a, there's a gap there for a reason, and I don't think people understand naturally what that reason is. Right? When people talk about, well, why might we delist companies in China, people never really dig under the hood and be like, oh, it's because this economic ownership structure actually falls apart at the stroke of a pen. Like They don't quite get that they're real reasons they're gates on this stuff. That's what concerns me. Yeah, That's I think that fair. makes I think that makes sense. That's fair. So, so an elephant in the room. Yeah. Let's talk blockchain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is your world. Yeah. So I, I want to frame it in a, in a kind of a different way. Okay. Right. So you're working on crypto assets. Yep. And like to me, and you know this because we've had this conversation. What's interesting is the utilization of blockchain technology to solve problems and efficiencies. Like that to me is the whole thing. Yep. So way more interesting to me than crypto assets is investing in companies that are going to transform trading systems. 
right? Like those sorts of things. So I will frame it to you this way. Looking from an ETF lens, how do you think in five years, 10 years, blockchain technology transforms the ETF industry and sort of market structure, Ooh, or does it? That's an interesting question. In five years, I'm a little bit skeptical that it does because these internal systems yeah. change really slowly. Within 10 years, I think it could transform uh, stock settlement and bond settlement and big chunks of the underpinnings. From a user's perspective, what is that going to mean from a user's perspective? David had a good view on that. Um, <laughs> I don't know that it will transform much from a user's perspective, but it should make it all much cheaper and more efficient. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the derivatives markets will be the first to change. Yes. Uh, I think you'll 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 sort of lose clearing houses and you'll lose big chunks of the internal derivatives infrastructure. It's just fundamentally unnecessary. Um, but I do think that'll be a 10-year issue. I don't think it'll be a five-year issue. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think it's 10 years, but I also think the regulatory issues are the ones that are in the way. If you can wave a magic wand and actually put smart people in charge of regulating this, the opportunity, again, 10 years is probably the right time frame, to have an entirely separate set of tokenized asset management rails is very real. That tech is there, right? I mean, folks like Wisdom Tree and Franklin Templeton are building versions of it, right? That ability to tokenize all of your beta exposures and then have smart contracts roll those up into portfolios, that's clearly the future. The only thing in the way of it is the regulatory infrastructure behind it. Yeah. I think it's, yes, it is clearly the future. Uh, and the current system is so terrible. I mean, people don't stop to think about how terrible it is, but stocks settle in two days. You still have paper certificates held by seed and company. Clearinghouses literally, I think, don't need to exist. Um, but it's going to take five to 10 years. Do you want to take a shot at the user experience piece of this? So like ETFs, I, the, it's why I think ETFs and blockchain have so many similarities because like it's really just about efficiencies adding efficiency to the system, right? So ETFs, when they came in, they allowed you to trade a portfolio in real time, right? Like that's an efficiency and yeah. the structure was cheaper and the spreads came down because of competition and all those things happened, right? And that completely changed the user experience of a mutual fund investor. You could buy in real time, you could benefit from tax efficiencies in th things that you could really see. So what are some of the user experience potential changes to tokenization? Yeah. You know, a lot of that stuff is back-end, I would think, efficiency, real-time security. You, you, you can see it in what happens in crypto. So here are a few things that are different about what happens in crypto versus, uh, versus what happens after crypto. Uh, for one, you trade 24-7, 365. There's no concept of off trades globally around the world, so same securities traded in every location. Single stocks, ADRs, trading here in an ETF wrapper is sort of the same thing. Like it's a blending of the global scene. That's one change that happens. A second change that happens is you don't have things like captive capital that's under earning from an interest perspective. So things like Schwab's business model become very challenged because with the push of a button in an interoperable world, you can have your cash find the highest yielding potential. And that actually destroys a huge profit center for a lot of what current Wall Street makes money on. Um, and then the third thing, which I think you'll see, and I'm sort of talking against my own book, is asset management companies become more pure IP companies um, with, with much, a much thinner layer, right? And I think it's an interesting question 
of whether asset managers or index providers or IP shops or collectives become the primary driver of that. But I think you can see that change. That's really interesting. It's, it's, it's lowering barriers to entry even more. I mean, we've already seen that this year. We passed the ETF rule. Now we've got a billion new ETFs doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Imagine a world where smart contract-based tokenized asset management was literally just available to anybody who is going to submit their smart contract to some sort of audit, which would be the natural way to do that. You have zero barrier to entry. Now every individual RIA can effectively be running their own funds because the wrapper no longer has this yeah. regulatory overhead. So the ability, what's going to change is everybody can be an asset manager, which means what will matter is relationships and brands. And that's when people should be worried about Walmart and Amazon and you know Google entering the business. Well, I think that's one way to worry. And then the other <laughs> side of worrying is on the- How many ways to worry? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's great. I, I think that's one way it could go. The other side it could go is- is more to the influencer side. You're yeah, seeing of course. huge influencers raise giant funds. Kevin. Uh, Kevin. Yeah, but, but but everyone, right? Um, Sorry, I can't not laugh. I thought of that guy running a fund after he put out a video saying, never trust me to run stocks. Like, <laughs> literally anti-marketing. Yes, but I, I think you'll see that. So you'll see consumer brands come in with ultra-low-cost beta that's effectively free, that's part of their brand offering, and then you'll see influencers come in and raise giant funds. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things. The other thing you, you see in crypto, which may or may not happen, is a blurring between early-stage investing and later-stage investing, which is something that's very true in crypto, but I think could be squeezed out from a regulatory Tell me more what you mean by that. Well, like in crypto, you can invest in tokens that barely exist, right? That, 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 that probably shouldn't exist. Right, they're friends and, and family. And in capital yeah. markets, there's there's regulatory structures that keeps that to okay. the accredited-only okay. class. Uh, and I think those will be actually applied into crypto. So I think that's going the other way, um, where that will be squeezed out of crypto. But these other changes are big. I mean, just the cash management piece is a huge change, right? Like if you're an international Coinbase customer and you have leftover cash... You push a button and it's automatically invested in a com in compound, which is a DeFi protocol earning a high yield. It's not even within Coinbase's structure, and I think you're going to see that sort of uh, opening of the architecture there. Well, and I mean, I I was very skeptical on some of this because I've heard this sort of cash management and crypto story before, which relies a lot on the internal dynamics of those tokens, which obviously can be suspect, and we've had big issues of the last year. So I was very skeptical about this, and then I got to know these guys at Meow who are doing it with treasuries and crypto. Yeah. And I got to know the guys at FM who launched the single treasury ETFs. Right. And in, so I started talking to a bunch of advisors about, oh, well, how are you managing cash? How are you dealing with treasuries? And it was a horror show. It's just not a part of the market I spent much energy on. The current guess I'm getting on the average burn it takes for an advisor to manage a bond ladder is like 15 to 25 basis points, which is insane. Yeah. Right? And the, and the archaic nature of the way Schwab, TD, Fidelity, and Pershing, the four that I've checked, the way you actually buy and sell treasuries on individual accounts there, I wouldn't do it if I was an RIA. So there's huge opportunities at that sort of interface between the advisor and the cash pool. You're right. Yeah. For more efficiencies and, and lowering sort of barrier of entry, I think that's like that's a really interesting aspect. I think of it almost like cable TV. So IP was like you know distribution versus IP, and the sort of battle of like when AOL bought Time Warner, right? Yep. Like that was that far into the spectrum. Well, now 
I can sign up to HBO or I can sign up to any like game and just buy that game, which always is what made more sense. Yet now yep. we seem to be spending more money. <laughs> we are definitely spending, we're definitely spending more money, I yeah. feel like. But like I'm get, getting better service. I getting feel better like service. Getting better service. And so like it's the equivalent of that. <clears throat> and it's the balance between kind of that access and noise, like the noise factor, regulatory, like, you know, and, and making sure that people are protected and products are good and things like that. The more sort of spread out everything gets, the harder that becomes, which I think is some of the government's reticence around regulating crypto, yeah. the sort of unintended consequences down the line of what that could mean. The same way internet is a mess. Yeah. Is a mess of like algorithms and AI and data privacy. Forget it. Like the world's going to hell right now. <laughs> like that, like people don't even well, like people don't even turn. <laughs> so like it's that. It's like this Pandora's box and being worried about opening this Pandora's box that I think the government is and you're like the best person to talk about that because you're Yeah, no, they're definitely worried about it. I think the analogy to the internet is the right one. Uh and I think it's important to note we got great things out of the internet. We have like a superpower in our pockets where uh, we can do amazing things and there are downsides and risks. And that's the same thing. I also think the government just doesn't know how to regulate something so new as crypto. I, I think it's actually an intractable problem. I've been thinking a lot about this because, you know, we have regulatory issues on the crypto side that, that sort of never seem to resolve. And then we've got regulatory issues on the ETF side, which sort of seem to have a much more logical path. I think we've got a mismatch in timeframes. I think crypto is changing at a faster cycle rate than regulation is possible. Literally, when you put in the barriers of things like federal register requirements, yeah, yeah. committees, and the fact you have to restart every Congress, you know, so everything in 117 goes away, now we're in 118, everybody starts the playing field over. Meanwhile, crypto will have gone through two generations of innovation. That right? is true. And so... I, I, my fear is they'll get around to regulating it, and they're going to regulate regulate 2015's crypto environment. Uh, I, 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 I love that point of view. I'm actually much more positive. Look, what they're going to regulate, they're going to regulate stable coins because that should be easy. They should be boring as dirt, and that will make the world more stable. And they're going to regulate disclosure, and that will be good because you shouldn't have projects guaranteeing 80,000% returns on interest investments. It just doesn't exist. And those are the two things they're going to get done first, and then they'll sort of slow slowly through benign neglect, let the rest of crypto continue to grow. That's it, the most Pollyanna version of crypto regulation I've heard. It's actually, uh, so, so, no, no, it's actually a regulatory theory on how you handle early stage disruptive technology. Just let it go? It's let them, no, 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 no. get a Madoff moment? To sort of establish, establish the, the protective perimeters. It's like the early stage of the internet. If you remember, Dave, because you're old like me, in the early days of the internet, they didn't tax sales right. in state basis. Why? Because they couldn't figure it out. <laughs> In the early days of the internet, there were no rules around whether platforms were liable for their content or not. They just didn't touch that box. Or data privacy. For a while. Same issues. Yeah, right? yeah, and the yeah. idea was that it was intentional. It was that this is an incredible technology. Let it grow in the U.S. And then let's figure out the regulatory structure over time. And I think that's actually what's going on in crypto. And that's why I said, like, the things they now know is you have to regulate stable coins and you have to regulate disclosures. And so I think that's going to be step one and step two. And then there's going to be a lot of hemming and hawing around step three, four, five, and six. So what are the things that concern you most about the crypto blockchain industry now? Like what are, what are, the, what are the biggest risks that you look at when you think about kind of the business you guys are building? 
Sure. Yeah. In the short term, I'm concerned about the macro environment and uh, and, and aggressive interest rate hikes uh, delaying the long term growth of all risk assets. Um, I am concerned about regulatory overreach because I do think there's some regulatory turf building going on uh, at the SEC versus the CFTC. And in that effort, there's always the chance that they'll make a tragic mistake. But mostly, I'm hugely bullish about the long term. You know, I joined crypto full time five years ago, and I think I was somewhere in the middle. And now I'm, I'm extremely convinced that the next cycle is 10x bigger than the past cycle. And um, uh, mostly, I'm just excited. But I'm worried a little bit about macro. I'm worried about regulation. And then from investors' perspective, I always worry about behavioral risk. I think it's the biggest risk in crypto. Uh, people selling at the wrong time, buying at the wrong time. It's, it's a big and concern. just having bad experiences. Bad experiences. But, but generally speaking, things are going great. Like the number of people interested in crypto is higher than ever before. The level of understanding is better than ever before. The projects are much more interesting before. We're on the doorstep of some really cool mainstream applications uh, that I think are going to open crypto to regular investors in a huge way in the next few years. Um, so mostly I'm really excited. Let's talk about that side from the investor perspective. So Cynthia and, and Dave, when you look at the crypto space, how should investors think about it? And what is the what are some of the best ways to benefit from kind of that upside of that, that transformation of efficiencies? Well, I'm, I'm sure Dave is a much better answer, but I was just looking at um, the BITO, for example, the, for example, just Bitcoin futures ETF, which is going to be a, a year old for next month. Um, and it's a half a billion dollar fund, which to me was actually surprising that he found that much traction. But the whole category itself hasn't gotten any traction. I mean, the next biggest one is like 12 million. So it was a one hit wonder, first to market, now we're done. So I'm just kind of curious whether once we kind of figure out this regulation, do we even get the whole Bitcoin, spot Bitcoin ETF? Do we even need it? Well, I Anybody think, even want it? Yeah, I mean, I think it would do the same thing. There'd be a natural asset level, right, where there's enough people who don't want to go through the other mechanics, right? I don't. Is that a billion dollars? Is it a three billion dollars? Is it half a billion, like BITO? And does that money just move into XYZ new Bitcoin ETF? But I'm I'm with you. I don't think that it suddenly means we've got a hundred billion dollar Bitcoin fund. I just don't think that makes any sense. Which, if you read on Twitter, that's what was going to happen. But, but, and nothing but else is going is to matter the, until that ETF. The came comp out. everybody uses is gold, right? Yeah. Which definitely expands and contracts. And you know, at some one point, GLD was the largest fund in the country, right? I mean, it definitely has its moments up and down. The difference is it's actually incredibly difficult to go buy 25 ounces of gold and right. in a way that you feel comfortable with. Yeah. It's pretty easy to go buy $25,000 worth of Bitcoin and put it in a wallet. It's not that easy if you're an advisor. It, doesn't, it still doesn't fit that well into advisor workflows, and that's the killer app. But I ultimately think, I mean, I'm talking my, my book here, index-based exposure or active fund exposure is going to be much more interesting because Bitcoin and Ethereum are fundamentally different, and I think people mm. uh, get that. I think that'll be you know, a $10, $100 billion market in the next handful of years. I think I think crypto is that important. What about what about the picks and shovels aspect? Right. Right? Like there's it seems like there's no great exposure to kind of the revolution behind the scenes all tiny. of what that looks like. Well here here's I mean is that a, is that an issue of like public markets and private capital and we we run a product. It's a great product. Uh, but it is true that the publicly traded crypto equity market is relatively small. If you look at the the crypto market capitalization 
across all ways to invest. There are three sleeves. There are private companies, VC, there's public companies, and there's liquid crypto assets. 85% of the market cap is in liquid crypto assets. Like 10% is in private companies and 5% is in public companies. Those are still good plays. I actually think they're dramatically undervalued in the market. I think they, they lack a natural buyer and they trade at very contained PEs. Um, but it is just a sliver of the market. Really, the, the real interesting stuff is mostly happening in liquid crypto assets. Um, but, you know, but we have a product there. There are a bunch of other products there. Oh, and, and, and for blockchain ETS, for example, the, the team at Tidal runs Block for Amplify. They manage that portfolio. And that fund is down like half a, a billion dollars this year. It's, but if you look at the, the flows, creation, redemption, it's all performance. Yeah. It hasn't actually seen redemption. So there is a bullishness about the story there. It's just that these stocks have been creamed this year. So it's a tough time. But to your point about... Um, the sort of difference between public and private markets and like where we are on that spectrum and how dominated that is sort of on the private side. Do you, do you, do you see a way that that shifts? Because you mentioned that there are not a lot of natural buyers for these companies. It's not clear and obvious that, you know, Microsoft will just buy up these guys or Amazon, right. which everybody's always looking for that when they're buying these sort of smaller mid-cap pick and shovel companies, right? So how does that resolve? Do you have to wait until the institutional market is so developed that a JP Morgan or a Schwab or a Microsoft is literally out there scooping up the tools companies? Look, uh, that's a good question. I think most of the value is going to accrue to the protocols themselves. So I think this is going to be a narrow sleeve. That said, I think Coinbase, you know, if you had to pick, I'm not saying it's going to be a trillion dollar company, but if you had to pick a company out of the top 500 companies that has a shot at being a giant, one of the top 10 companies in the world, I think Coinbase is as good yeah. a bet as any. Um, and then they become the buyer. And then they become the buyer of the smaller players. A lot of the like Coinbase competitors that would be naturally acquired are not public yet. Uh, they're still private, but there's there's a large pipeline of IPOs. I think it's an interesting space, and it's a good way for advisors to get exposure that can't buy crypto assets, right? It's a good way for advisors to get exposure that like price-to-earnings ratios and revenues and sales and things that are not familiar, uh, but it is a small market. But to, we never answered your actual question, which is how should advisors be thinking about investing in it? Like, where does it fit oh. versus everything else? And to my mind, I think it's appropriate to think about it as non-profitable tech. Like, if you were an advisor in 1999 or a terrible portfolio manager like Matt, like, we spent a lot of time and energy chasing companies that weren't making any money yet because we believed they were going to do something in the future. Now, we may not have been successful running our fund back then, but I do think that there, those opportunities, those sort of ground floor get it right and you have generational wealth. I think those things yeah. are real like they were in 1999. Um, I think it's actually even harder to figure out what who the winners are than it was then. And I would crap at it then. So. Yeah. I mean, pets.com, I don't know what you guys are thinking. <laughs> I think Dave's right. It's like cayenne pepper. You need a little bit in your portfolio, but if you have too much, it'll overwhelm you. But it's worth noting, it is, despite the pullback, the best performing asset class in the world over the last three, five, and 10 years. Its compound annual return over the last 10 years is 120% a year. And it has some of the smartest investors in the world. So a one, two, 5% allocation, I think can make sense for a lot of people. So have you ever met somebody who jumped with both feet into crypto and completely changed their tune? I, I, what I think is amazing in the crypto space is that it's all really diehard conviction. Oh. And, I, and I just, I think that's so impressive. Well, I, I, I've never found someone who dug deep and didn't get, didn't get really intrigued. 
Uh, all, all the people who hate crypto are superficial on their hatred of crypto. Once you understand, <laughs> uh, once you understand the technology, you, you think it's at least interesting. Mm-hmm. That's at least true. But I do think it's the case that the pullback has humbled some of the most aggressive, yes. outgoing bulls on this. I mean, Pomp wrote a letter recently oh, where sure. he was talking about taking the laser eyes off of his off of his uh, icon, off his image, and and I thought it was pretty even-handed. It's like, look. You know, the hype doesn't help. We have to focus on what's real. I've seen a lot of that, which isn't necessarily recidivism. It isn't people running back to J.P. Morgan to go get their old jobs. No. But there, I think there is some of that calming Humility. of it's the great. hyperbole. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Dave, you had like number three, four, and five big ideas. <laughs> oh, yes. what's, what's your best? Uh, so future, your best fixed in, future fixed income is what I'm actually spending most of my energy on right now. And some of that is what we've already seen in the ETF market that's been just awesome to watch. BombBlox launching the sector bond ETFs, FM launching the Treasury Direct products, which I'm now a big fan of, was very skeptical of. Folks like Simplify doing the more complex stuff, like PFIX, which is not really fixed income, but it's certainly using the rails of a lot of the fixed income that we think about. Um, you know, there, And if you look at the filing list, there's another 100 great products coming. There's a lot of greenfield space here. I mean, if you look at the average bond allocation, you're either in a reasonably constructed index, but fixed income indexing has all sorts of problems of its own. Or you're with an active bond manager, generally somebody who's pretty storied, you know, a PIMCO, a double line, somebody like that. Or what? You're rolling it your own off tiny little slices. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity for bonds as a portfolio asset packaged in better ways. The whole other side of it, too, is like bonds as financing, like how corporations and governments actually use the bond market to get money, that's changing completely. I mean, the, the talk about blockchain applications, I think the corporate bond space is right for that. And there's been a ton of really great projects, World Bank, Santander, Singapore, uh, uh, El Salvador, despite the fact that Bitcoin came down, like really cool stuff going on the bond issuance space coming there as well. So I, I think all the cool stuff is going to happen in either crypto or fixed income. I actually agree with Dave, which is oh god, painful. Uh, you the know, media. We we I said this I don't know ten years ago. I think bonds are a better ETFs are a better solution for bonds than they are for stocks. I think in a mature state, thirty years from now, it's possible there's more bond ETF assets than equity ETF assets. Um, and I think we're heading that direction. We're finally seeing the kind of innovation that would allow that. It took a long time. For a long time, the bond ETF space was really boring. Um, but this year, the last year, it's gotten very exciting. I think alternatives fit that too, if I may throw in a half good idea. Um, if you look at the biggest alternatives ETF today is RPAR, and that fund is barely three years old. So that tells you there's so much space to come up with new ways um, yeah. and to repackage this stuff, to really give advisors like more plug and play opportunities to incorporate that stuff in portfolios. And I think that this year has been a great reminder of the power of a good alternatives ETF. I mean, I think everybody had a, has had a conversation DBMF. with, with Andrew Beer yeah, this Andrew year. I mean, he has called yeah. everyone to make sure we took notice. <laughs> Incredible performance, but it really is, you know, stuff we don't pay attention to in bull markets. Who who cares about the, those diversifiers? So 
I think there may be some interesting product development and alternatives. Yeah, and that's forward. that's actually my fifth pillar is complex products, which I'm putting in that 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 mix. And I, I agree completely. I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in the packaged product space, but I also think there's a, still a huge educational opportunity about how you construct portfolios around some of those counter-correlated assets, how you effectively use leverage. I love the whole little window we had last year where we were talking about portfolio efficiency and using small amounts of leverage on the 64. Um, like Corey Hofstein at Newfound came out with a paper on that, capital efficiency. Um, so I think those are great expansions of our thinking about how you construct portfolios. And there's a lot of really cool academic nerdery going on around portfolio construction that's challenging a lot of our preconceptions about how assets work together. Um, and I think it gets even more confounded by crypto because it's a whole new asset class that has bizarre correlation metrics versus all other asset classes. And I always count on you to digest the nerdery and give me in like smaller <laughs> bites. Yeah, so my phone number. I'm a big follower. Sure. <laughs> I, I've got another one that we haven't talked about that seems like an obvious one to me. Maybe it fits into one of your sleeves, but um, private equity, private capital and access to advisors and retail to those markets. How big of an opportunity do you think that is? Kind of what do you see percolating and, and developing right now with ETF issuers and in the asset management industry. I mean, now that the influencers crossed that line too, and we have Kim Kardashian <laughs> running a PE firm. Hey, she's, she's amazing. Yeah. Oh some God. incredible yeah. brands. Um, yeah. Incredible. The, the thing about that space uh, that's been true for a while, which I still think in, isn't, isn't cracked, is it's, it's always been difficult and there's always been technological shots on goal to make it easy for advisors to access that space. And no one has solved that well, problem. I, I, I think it's actually solved. I think we may have reached an equilibrium point where the the demand has sort of matched the availability because like places like Carta and Whoa. all those places. I, I mean, look. I disagree. If we packaged I it up and made it that. easier. If you could buy the Carta 100 index of the top 100 privately traded companies, advisors would do that all day long. And we haven't solved that problem. No, but but there's there's a, there's an access. My point is there's there's an available asset problem as well. Right. Oh, you I you think. Yeah. Do you think that all the of a sudden size you can of the private market has gotten much larger versus the, the the public market over the last ten years? And money hasn't been that hard for anybody to find. So my point is, if you throw ten x more money at it, does that like how, how does that actually make that function? But it's different money. I don't think it's advisors, individual clients' money accessing the shares of like pre IPO companies, which I still think there is massive demand for that to happen. Um, I just think that hasn't been solved. One thing that has been solved recently is national account platforms have been aggressively working yeah. on building out their alt sleeve. So I do think if we get another bull wave around private markets, you'll see incremental more ac more use because they've all onboarded Case and they've all onboarded ICAP and they've all onboarded all these platforms. Um, but I still think it's on the edges. I don't think anyone's... No, I'm not, look, I, what I'm saying is I don't think that there's a big technological gap that we need to cross. I think now it's just a matter of whether or not people care enough to demand it because the tech's baked. That's sort of my point. It's like I, I don't think there's another shoe to drop except for natural marketing. Interesting. I don't know. I mean, I'm probably wrong. I don't know. I, I think there's still like there's huge liquidity mismatches there. Yeah. I don't know if there's a solution there. Interval um, funds. I mean, a lot of people are trying to poke at the interval fund structure now, and maybe interval see if funds. They can figure out some ways to make that work for them. Slightly skeptical. Maybe iconic managers that pull together different, different like 
companies and secondaries and package them into index solutions. I just don't see those sorts of solutions. Like, the, look, what is the fun that I buy that gives me access to the Carta 100? I think is is what I would like to see, and I think what a lot of advisors would like to see. Um, yeah. And yeah. Uh, and that should be possible, but it's really not. It's like theoretically possible. You could cobble it together on Forge if you spent a lifetime doing it. <laughs> But it's not actually possible to buy the Carta 100, and I think it should be. Even as a structured product, I think it would be great. Charge 2% on it. You'd be all set. Three. <laughs> <laughs> so I so here we are, me. future-proof, yeah. conference kicking off. Um, Matt, you guys have both been involved, right? Has everyone? No, I'm just here on stage a couple of times. I mean, we've got a big booth. Come by and get a skateboard. Yeah. So what, what, are you, what are you most excited about for the event and kind of – Content wise, structure wise, what should be what should people be looking out for and, and diving into? I'm just excited for the different mix of people that you see at this conference. If you look around, the the, the people look uh, look different than they do at traditional financial services conferences. We're all outside. I'm excited mostly for the mingling. The content stuff is exciting, um, but I'm mostly excited for the mingling here. I think it's going to be different than other financial conferences. Yeah, uh, for me, I think it's it's that. I love getting out of the house, to be honest, and see people face-to-face. -face. But, you know, we spent so much time talking about holistic asset management and all, you know, big pieces of a whole. And But I always find ourselves in the ETF crowd. So I love the diversification of the conversation a little bit, different panels, different ways to look at the world. So there's so much to learn. I, I'm yeah, I I'm mostly excited. I you know me, I'm people are hard and content is interesting for me. So I, I'm super excited for what's going on on the stages here. It's voices we don't hear a lot of other places. Already yesterday, we had folks on stage that you never see on stage at these things talking about issues that we generally skip over about managing managing diversity and working with difficult clients or working with clients that have unusual needs or um, you know storytelling. I mean, Brian Portnoy has a thing tomorrow. I'm dying to see on using storytelling with advisors and and having that be a part of your practice. You can call some of that stuff soft if you want. I actually. Think I think it's the most important part of most financial advisors' jobs. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited to see that on all the stages all week. Yep. Yeah, there's nothing more fundamental than like client relationships, right? Like that yeah. is the core to building a good advisory business, I think, right? Um, how does it feel, Dave, to be out of your cave and into the sunlight? <laughs> well, I mean, you know me. I'm terrified to be in public, so we'll start with that. Um, no, this is my kryptonite because, like, put me in a hot place that's a little humid, surrounded by people, and that's you pretty much written my definition of hell. But I will say um, it helps that the people here – I mean, we, it's a pretty small community even though there are a lot of new people here. So it helps that, you know, every third person I know I've known for 25 years. Um, but I, it is an event like – unlike any I've ever been at before. And I actually think the vibe is a big part of it. That sounds hippie, but like the vibe is different when you walk into a conference hey, we're on in Huntington sandals. Beach. You yeah. know? We're it's on. a very different vibe. And I think that actually allows you to make better connections as people. And, you know, that's kind of our whole jam is that, you know, we're trying to build a community, I mean, but you have to do it one person at a time. Than me. I'm like, yeah. I'm with you all the way. For sure. So I think we will wrap now. Thanks everyone for coming. Uh, thanks to you and the listening world out there from Huntington Beach. This has been Pennies from Heaven with Jim Wyatt, Dave Nodig, Matt Hogan, Cynthia Murphy. Thanks everyone. Thanks Cheers. everybody. Thanks everybody. You've been listening to the Pennies from Heaven podcast with Jim Wire. Produced by Spark Network and Conor O'Hingisa. 
Music is by Pearl Charles. Take your time. For more music from Pearl Charles, go to pearlcharlesmusic.bandcamp.com. This podcast is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as well as on sparknetwork.com.